Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, here's your chance. I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. In this dramatized series based on historical events, we resurrect some of the world's most notable figures. And in the world of football, there's a lot to choose from. In this episode, we meet Ferenc Puskas, recognized as football's first international superstar. Born in interwar Hungary, Puskas belonged to a golden generation of Hungarian footballers. As a boy, he raced trams to improve his speed. As a man, he was a hero of both the people and the communist regime in the late 1940s. He seemed to have it all, but in hindsight, he was not as untouchable as he had believed and went from national hero to fugitive. Hindsight, you've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. We're six minutes away from the full-time whistle, and the score is three for West Germany, two for Hungary. Can the Hungarians drive this into extra time? It's 1954, and the Hungarian national team is playing in the World Cup final in Bern, Switzerland. It's Pushkash with the ball, running down the left wing past the defence line. What incredible control he has over the ball. He's on his own now, and he shoots! He scores the equaliser in the dying minutes of the match. Even when injured, he's still the best player on the pitch. Oh, hold on. There seems to be a misunderstanding. The referee is ruling the play offside. The mighty Magyars, as that generation of the Hungarian team was called, had been undefeated in four years of international play. Just two weeks prior, they had humiliated West Germany 8-3 in the group stage. But now, with their captain injured, Hungary lost the one match that mattered most. We ended the competition to win it. But that's football. You win some, you lose some. The star of the team was undoubtedly Ferenc Pushkash. Throughout his life, he collected many nicknames. In England, he was called the Galloping Major for his speed and military title. In Spain, the Booming Cannon for his powerful left foot shot. And in Hungary, he was affectionately referred to as the Little Brother. On the pitch, Pushkash was Hungary's team captain and goal-scoring machine. Off the pitch, people regarded him as one of their own. So did the state. Born between two world wars, Pushkas's avoidance of politics didn't stop it from affecting his career. The state saw him as a communist success story, especially after beating the Western power like England 6-3 back in 1953 at Wembley. That game would later be known as the match of the century. His status as captain of a golden team and his proximity to power helped him live a life so far removed from most of his countrymen. But those benefits came with a price. And for Pushkash, they almost cost him his career. This is the story of Ferenc Pushkash, with all the goals and all the misses. You may know me as Ferenc Pushkash, but I was born Ferenc Purzeld, 
on April 2, 1927 in Budapest, Hungary. Actually, it was April 1st, but my mother changed it so that the kids wouldn't make a fool of me. <laughs> my mother was a tailor, and my father was a professional footballer. When Pushkash was a baby, his father moved the family to Kispest, now a district of Budapest. Ferenc Pushkash Sr. had gotten an offer to play at the Kispest Sport Club. You probably don't know him. He wasn't as good as me. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. He was a central defender, an entirely different position from mine. Like father, like son. His family claimed that Pushkash Jr. first kicked the ball at 10 months old. Growing up in Kishpest, we had very little money. We lived in a small apartment. My parents, my sister Eva and I, in one of those communal houses where each family had a room and a kitchen and all the neighbors shared one bathroom. The whole neighborhood was like that. It was tough times. <sighs> For the working class, the early interwar period was a time of poverty and deprivation. Hungary found itself on the losing side of the First World War and by the end of it was forced to sign away two-thirds of its territory and more than half of its population. The Treaty of Trianon Palace distributed swathes of Hungary's territory mostly to Czechoslovakia, Austria, and the newly formed Yugoslavia and Romania. In the two years that followed the conflict, Hungary swung between the political left and right. By 1933, almost one in five people in the capital lived in poverty. I knew we were poor, but my parents never complained. Things were easier for us compared to everyone else in the neighborhood. We were a family of four, when most families had about a dozen kids. There were probably a hundred kids living in my street, and I was friends with most of them. Uchi, complain. They called me Uchi, which means little brother, because I was the youngest of them all. We didn't have any toys, but we had football. I used to make footballs from my mom's stockings. <laughs> Our kitchen window overlooks the pitch of the Kishpest Football Club. It was like having a front row seat to all the action. I used to watch the team. Then I'd copy their moves when I played with my friends. We'd find the nearest dusty field and run across it barefoot, kicking the ball. Nothing stopped us. <laughs> In street football, there were no rules, but we were friends at the end of the day, no matter which side we played on. Hey, hey, buddy, stop. Don't push Tutu like that. Jozef Bozik. Tutu, as we always called him, was my best friend. No, he was more like my brother. He was the shy, quiet friend, the one your parents trust more than they trust you. And I was the loud, outspoken one. But I was forgiven for that. I was always there to defend him and any of our teammates. I wasn't exactly built like an athlete. I was a short, chubby kid. <laughs> All right, I remained short and chubby even when I grew up. But I had a natural instinct for football, and I worked really hard to improve my skills. I was also fast. I used to race trams, yes, Moving trams. My father used to encourage me, 
in his own special way. Oh, my son, a footballer. Nah, he's too lazy and slow. <laughs> Very funny, Dad. But just you see, I'm going to become faster than this tram one day. The tram drivers had fun racing the energetic kid and even rooted for him when he became fast enough to overtake them. But his father, despite his teasing, was his biggest cheerleader, and he'd do anything to protect his son and family, including changing their name. P-U-S-K-A-S. Pushkash. Come on, repeat after me. In the 1930s, a wave of nationalism swept through Europe, and Hungary was no exception. The state launched an aggressive campaign of Magyarization, a policy by which minorities were coerced into changing their surnames to sound more Hungarian. If they failed to do so, they'd be deemed unpatriotic. My father and his side of the family were from Germany. In 1937, he changed our name from Purzeld to Pushkash to hide our origins. He was retiring from playing football and had to prove that he was Hungarian enough to be a coach. For young Pushkash, that was his first glimpse of the intersection between football and politics, one he would find himself caught up in later in his career. Every year, a coach from Kishpest was tasked with picking new players for the club's youth team. They would roam the streets to watch us play, and we tried to give them the best show. And he juggles, and he dribbles, and he makes the run for the goal, and he shoots, and goal! And I was still not picked. <laughs> the coach picked his friend, Jozef Bozik. Pushkas, not lacking in skills, was simply too young to join the youth team. The minimum age was 12, and Pushkas was 10. But he was desperate to play, so he got creative. No, coach, listen, you can't take Tutu alone. Huh? Yeah, that's what we call Bozik. My birth year? Well, I'm 12. I swear I am. So, 1925? And my name? Um, Kovacs Miklos. <laughs> hey, don't judge me. I was eager to play, and I couldn't risk the club finding out who my father was, or else my cover would be blown, so I had to lie about my name, too. He didn't fool anyone. Everyone knew who the Wonder Kid was. His name and age. And the scouts knew the kid was too good to be overlooked. They let him join. I was the youngest and shortest player on the youth team. When we practiced dribbling or attacking, the other guys towered over me. It's because of that I had to learn how to be really fast and sneaky with the ball. Soon after we joined the youth team, he got a new coach. Eh, he was all right. Gather here, boys. Pushkas Jr. is going to show you how to shoot the ball without having to control it first. Of all the coaches I had in my career, my father was probably my favorite. He let me do my own thing. He even let me lead the training sessions sometimes. It was only partially nepotism. Young Pushkas showed real leadership early on. I love to direct the game and help get the best out of my teammates. We were one of the best youth teams in all of Hungary. We scored more than 130 goals each season. 
When the first team went out onto the pitch to practice, Pushkas lingered to watch, and sometimes he'd take a few shots at the goalkeeper to see if he was good enough by first team standards. But his ambitions would have to wait. Hungary was heading into another conflict. In the years leading up to the Second World War, Hungary strengthened its relations with Germany. The two nations signed a trade agreement that helped Hungary's economy recover after the First World War. And with Hitler's help, Hungary expanded into territories it had previously lost. In November 1940, Hungary joined the Axis powers when it signed the Tripartite Pact under pressure from Germany. The country actively joined the war in 1941 when Hungarian forces participated in the invasion of the Soviet Union. Well, if we thought we were poor before, hmm, I don't know what you'd call us after we entered the war. The country focused on the war industry to fulfill the demand of the Axis troops. Food products and consumer goods became less of a priority, inflation increased, and living standards declined. But we were safe, at least in the first few years. There were no ground battles in Hungary, so the football league continued. In 1943, my dad, I mean our coach, called us out to the pitch. Boys, as you know, the first team is short on players because of the draft. So they'll be taking some of you. When you hear your name, step forward. Boshi. Charles. Devlin. Come on, come on. Oh, this weight is terrible. Why didn't my name start with an A? And Pushkash. I made it. I had been playing with a youth team for six years. And in November 1943, I made my debut with a Kishpest first team. I was 16. In his first season with the first team, Pushkash scored seven goals in 18 matches. You never know for sure when you're going to score a goal. So, when it happens, there's no other feeling like it. Man, I love this game. But during one of our matches in the spring of 1944, warplanes flew over the pitch. Hey, pass the ball. We'll finish the game. Then see what that's all about. It was the beginning of the occupation. In 1943, finding itself on the losing side of another world war, Hungary entered into peace negotiations with the Allies. In retaliation, Nazi Germany occupied Hungary. To push the Germans back, the Soviet Union launched an attack on Budapest. On December 26, 1944, the Red Army encircled the capital. The siege of Budapest lasted 50 days. We hid in cellars that whole time, while the Germans and Soviets fought each other in our backyards. In February 1945, the capital was liberated from the German occupation. It was a somber victory. Some 38,000 civilians were killed, 13,000 from military action and 25,000 from starvation, diseases and other causes. The Germans were gone, but the Soviets weren't ready to leave. Not yet. When we emerged from our cellars, well, it was a shock. Everything had been demolished. 
the bridges that linked the two sides of the capital, Buda and Pesht, were destroyed as well. The whole neighborhood headed to the Kishpesht pitch to check on each other. Sutsu, come here. I missed you, brother. What do you say we play a quick match, huh? <laughs> Let's see if we can still run. <laughs> I was 18 when I was called to play for the national team. The war had just ended, and everyone was eager to put that dark chapter behind us. We played Austria, and I scored the first goal of the match. We beat them 5-2, to two, and to celebrate, the Football Federation threw one of the best victory parties I've ever been to. Mm, ooh, look at that. And we thought there was no food in Budapest. Turns out, it's all here. Life was slowly getting back to normal, but the war had left some irreversible changes. Following its victory in the Second World War, and with its Red Army already deployed in Hungary, the Soviet Union put an end to the Hungarian monarchy that had ruled since 1920. In 1946, the Republic of Hungary was declared. Industry was nationalized, and the key posts in the new government were all held by members of the Communist Party. The Sovietization of Hungary was just beginning. But where football was concerned, everything was business as usual. Pushkash was now captain of the Kispest first team, and his father was their coach. In the 1945-46 season, Pushkash scored 37 goals in 34 games. He was making a name for himself for having an incredibly accurate left-footed shot. The following season, he led Kispest to its best ranking in 27 years finishing second in the top league. All eyes were on Pushkash, inside and outside of Hungary. In 1947, we played a friendly match against Italy. We lost, but after the match, I was offered $100,000 to play for Juventus Football Club. That was a huge amount at the time. Are you sure you didn't write an extra zero by mistake? <laughs> I really don't know what to say. I guess I have to think about it. It was certainly a tempting offer, especially for a 20-year-old. But there was nothing to think about, really. I couldn't possibly go. Soviet-controlled Hungary could be a dangerous place to be for citizens of German origin. More than 200,000 people during and after the war were expelled. Pushkas' star was rising fast among the new communist powers of his country, and he understood that his loyalty to them was essential to the safety of his family. He stayed put. But things weren't all bad. She was 16 years old, a handball player in Kishpest Club. We never said more than a passing hello until one day, outside the locker room, I got the chance to say something more. Boys, would anyone happen to have a comb? I have one. Here you go. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, anytime. Whenever you need a comb, uh, just come find me. What? After that day in 1948, our hellos turned to how are yous. Then gradually our conversations got longer till we started walking together to the pitch and going to each other's matches. And well, we fell in love. 
In his first three seasons with Kiespest's first team, he averaged more than a goal per match. In the 1947-48 season, he was the top scorer in the Hungarian league and all major leagues in Europe, scoring 50 goals in 32 matches. Sport thrived under the communist regime. It was a soft power through which the state promoted communism to the world. We certainly had privileges as athletes, but we weren't free to come and go as we pleased. We had a national duty to play in our country. Accepting offers from abroad was punishable. By 1949, Hungary had become a Soviet satellite state, and as with other businesses, sport was nationalized. Kispest was chosen to represent the People's Army and was renamed to Honved, Hungarian for the Defenders of the Homeland. Its players were given military ranks. You are now more than just football players. You're also members of the People's Army. We expect you to conduct yourselves accordingly. Even you, Major Pushka. Sir! <laughs> yes, sir! Kispest, Honved. I didn't care what the club was called. Football is football, regardless of the names. But the names did matter. Honved had the power to acquire the best players in Hungary, and who could say no to a military club? Football was a commitment, a real one, that's for sure. But by 1950, Pushkas had another commitment on his mind as well. After two years of dating, Erzsébet and I got married on April 10, 1950. I was a lucky man. I am also grateful my father was there. We lost him two years later. His death was hard to take. During the day, he was my football coach, and off the pitch, he was my mentor. He was the first footballer I ever knew. But that year, I was also blessed. I became a father. I would like to call her Oniko because she has graced us with her presence. Oniko was our only child. I wish I could have stayed longer after she was born, but I got called up to the Summer Olympics in Helsinki, and I was named captain of the national football team. Playing an international competition under a communist regime was no game. We had to win. Luckily, we had a strong team, and we had perfected a strategy the world hadn't seen before. Our coach, Shebesh, trained us all to defend, attack, and score. He taught us to be fluid. That was the birth of total football as we know it today a tactic where players can swap positions while on the go. It gave us flexibility and the advantage over our opponents. They had a hard time deciding which one of us to defend against. The strategy worked. Hungary took home gold at the 1952 Olympics. From then on, the world knew them as the golden team. We got the chance in 1953 to play against England at Wembley. That was a huge deal. The oldest football association in the world invited us to play. We had been undefeated in our last 24 matches. But I'd be lying if I said we weren't a little nervous. 
Guys, listen. The English have a player who's even shorter than me. <laughs> I think we're going to be all right. Hidakuti, you genius. A goal in the first minute. Come here. Chibor, pass. That was probably my favorite goal of all time. The drag back. It wasn't planned. It was just a thing I did while playing street football as a kid. Basically, you run with the ball, and when the defender runs to tackle you, you push the ball back with your heel, and they end up, well, kicking the air and falling down. In what later became known as the match of the century, Hungary defeated England 6-3. And we beat them 7-1 when they came to Hungary six months later. The state wanted to reward us for our wins. But we weren't a rich country, so we weren't getting any bonuses. We were, however, given the green light to make money in other ways. Nandi, here are your watches. Kovac, your suitcase is light. Did you not get any watches to sell? I bought a lot. I'll give you some. Living under communism, we didn't have many luxuries. When we traveled with Honved and the national team, we would buy watches and socks, and we made good money selling them back home. It's not smuggling if the state knows about it. I've always considered myself apolitical, and I believe the general public knew we were all trying to make the best of a bad situation. In 1954, we arrived in Switzerland as favorites to win the World Cup. Everyone believed it was ours for the taking. We hadn't lost a single international match in four years. In our first match during the group stage, we beat South Korea by nine goals. Then we came up against West Germany. We're already 3-0, and it's only been 21 minutes. I think this one's in the bag. Ten minutes into the second half, we were 5-1. to one. And we were scoring goals for fun at that point. Until... I'm open! Pass me the ball! Well, here I come! In the 60th minute of the match, Werner Liebrich, the West German defender, tackled Pushkash. Pushkash laid on the ground in obvious pain before he was carried off the pitch. The Hungarian medical team prescribed at least two weeks' rest for his left ankle. The Golden team would have to finish their World Cup run without the captain and star of the team. It was great to see our boys beat West Germany 8-3 to that day. As for me not coming back to play in the World Cup, I think we all knew that wasn't going to happen. After a couple of days' rest, I was fit to play again. Hungary pushed through to the final sending the defending champions Uruguay, as well as Brazil, home. In the final, they once again faced West Germany. It's coming my way. Let's score this! I scored the first goal in the sixth minute. Then we scored again by the tenth minute. But the Germans weren't letting up. We started the second half in a 2-2 draw. And six minutes before full time, 
They scored their third goal. Guys, we can't lose this. Come on. There's still time left. I scored our third goal only a couple of minutes before the full-time whistle. But the linesman declared the goal offside. West Germany won. Or rather, we lost. Unbelievable. Many believe the World Cup has been Hungary's for the taking. Even their own government had printed out stamps to commemorate the win before the game had even been played. The match became known as the Miracle of Bern. For West Germany, some historians believe it helped heal a nation divided by war. Hungary, however, erupted. What do you mean we can't go back to Budapest? Protests? So you're telling me if people saw me in the streets, they would attack me? For losing a competition? The loss of the World Cup final had set off a riot in the Hungarian capital. Players were advised to sit back and wait for instructions from the state. We were accused of selling the match to the Germans for Mercedes cars. (laughs) What nonsense! We were picked up in Vienna and brought back to Tata training camp, just an hour away from Budapest. The Minister of Defence and other high-ranking officials were waiting for us. Well, team, needless to say, we will protect you from any attacks, but we advise that, at least for a while, you don't show yourselves to the public unless absolutely necessary. When the shock of the World Cup loss finally wore off, the team enjoyed another two-year winning streak. The people were forgiving, but the state kept a close eye on the players and even revoked their smuggling privileges. The tide was turning. We're reporting live from Budapest, where the situation on the street is chaotic. In October 1956, a group of university students compiled a list of demands concerning the Soviet Union's interference in Hungarian politics and the economy. During a peaceful mass demonstration on the 23rd, police opened fire. It turned into a spontaneous armed uprising. But football carried on. The Union of European Football Associations sent Honved a warning letter. It said that if we didn't play our scheduled match against the Spanish club Bilbao, we'd be banned from playing in the competition for two years. We had no choice but to travel to Spain and play. By the end of October, Soviet forces began to withdraw from Budapest. For a few days, it seemed like the revolution was succeeding, but Soviet reinforcements were deployed to the borders. On November the 4th, the Soviet military attacked the capital and crushed the Hungarian revolution. Around 2,500 Hungarians were killed and almost 200,000 fled the country. Pushkash was about to go from national hero to fugitive. I decided to go to Vienna instead of going home. During the revolution, many Hungarians were escaping to Austria, including my wife and daughter. Hold on, Amiko. We're almost there. Don't you want to see Daddy? We're going to him. You just gotta hold on a little longer. They crossed the Austrian border on foot 
towards the end of November. I was so relieved when we finally met up in Vienna. The team decided to stay put until the situation in Budapest cleared up. We played friendlies to earn money, but also to keep fit. And one day, we received an offer for a tour in Brazil. Flamengo Club is offering us $10,000 per game and plane tickets to and from Brazil. No, we can't go. I won't go. We don't have permission, and we're in the military. We'd be deserters. So what do you suggest we do, Tsutsu? Go home and do what? We don't even know when we'd be able to play again. The Hungarian Football Federation insisted the players go back to Hungary, rest, train, and then, and only then, would the tour be allowed. Defying those orders would be going against the state. His childhood friend, Jozef Bojik, and a few other Honved players decided to play it safe and went back to Budapest. I refused. The Hungarian Football Federation reached out to FIFA, who declared the team illegal. We went to Brazil anyway on January 9, 1957. Thousands of people waited for us at the airport, and everywhere we went, people greeted us warmly. We won three out of five matches. When the tour ended, the team made their way back to Vienna. There, waiting for them, were the Hungarian authorities. The players were put on trial. They were told they must immediately return to Budapest to face their punishments, the most severe of which awaited their captain, Pushkash. I was told that I would be banned from playing football for 18 months. I was 30 years old then, so that was a death sentence from my career. So I refused to go back to Hungary. My family and I stayed put. Mm. Oh, mm. bring me that. Well, that's what I do when I'm too stressed. I drink and eat. I wasn't playing or training, so my belly became more of a balloon. <laughs> but I was beginning to worry. With no income, we were running out of money. Just as I was close to losing all hope of playing again, I got a phone call. You want me to come to Madrid? Uh, yeah, I can come meet him. But I doubt he'll want to go ahead with it once he sees what shape I'm in. I was happy to get the chance to meet the president of Real Madrid. But I had to manage my expectations. I was fat. I had gained 18 kilos. It was an interesting meeting. I had no idea what he was saying. He spoke Spanish. I replied in Hungarian. I pointed to my belly and gestured to him in confusion. He told me, Amigo Puskas, that's your problem, not mine. He offered me $100,000 for a four-year contract. And he gave me $5,000 up front. We're rich. We moved from Vienna to Madrid in the summer of 1958. Okay, Ergie. From now on, I'm on a strict diet. Even if I beg you for egg-coated fried bread, don't make it. Pushkash trained hard, swore off beer and fried bread. In six weeks, he lost the weight he'd put on over 18 months. But the real challenge awaited him on the pitch. 
guys are fast! Spanish football was much faster than what I was used to in Hungary. I had to push myself hard to catch up. I also had to get over the fact that I was no longer in charge on the pitch. I was now taking orders from someone else. Yes, no problem. As you wish, my friend. I played striker, like I had in Hungary. I also wore the same jersey number. Number 10. Come on! Of course I know how to say hola and buenos dias. No, cuento. I want you to teach me the other words. Like what the fans say when you miss an easy shot. <laughs> I really grew to love my teammates in Spain. The players called me Pancho. When the fans started liking me, they called me that too. It was certainly an upgrade from Major Belly. <laughs> In Hungary, Pushkash was now an outcast. Instructed by the state, the press didn't report any news about his career in Spain. They were missing out. In his first season with Real Madrid, Pushkash was the second highest scorer for Real Madrid. The star player, Di Stefano, surpassed him by only one goal. Shoot this one, or should I? All right, then. Ah! In our spare time, I'd teach them card games in the locker room. And every Monday, we'd have lunch together. I believe that closeness made us a strong, united team. We won the Champions League in 1959. Well, back then, we called it the European Cup but I had to miss the final match because of an injury. But I didn't miss the finals the next year. A good pass finds the brilliant Pushkash. The unstoppable Pushkash scores again. We beat Eintracht Frankfurt 7-3. I scored four goals and Di Stefano scored three. Today, Pushkash still holds the record for most goals scored in a Champions League final. And to his ever-growing list of nicknames, another was added. The Real Madrid fans called him Canoncito Poom, Spanish for the booming cannon. In 1961, I became a naturalized citizen of Spain, and I was picked to join the Spanish national team for the 1962 World Cup in Chile. It was bittersweet. I had never imagined playing for another country other than Hungary. I had thought that 1954 was going to be my only World Cup. But here I got the opportunity to play again. Oh, oh, I'm not as fit as I used to be, huh? Look at Garincha go! Brazil knocked us out of the competition during the group stage. We lost 2-1. to one. With a little help from the referee, if you ask me. Well, we weren't great. We finished bottom of the group. I had decided after that I would retire from international football. It would have been great to go out on a high and score a winning goal in my final competition, but I had already scored enough for a lifetime, no? <laughs> With 84 goals in 85 international matches for the Hungarian national team, 
and 514 goals in 529 matches in the top leagues of Hungary and Spain, Puskas is among the top five goal scorers of all time. In 1967, at the age of 40, Puskas hung up his boots, but he wasn't ready yet to retire from the game entirely. He became a coach. In 1970, I went to Greece to coach Panathinaikos. All right, boys, listen up. Fans are here to watch you score goals. So instead of basic drills, I'm going to show you exactly how to handle the ball. So focus, because I tend to move fast. Pushkas' coaching was unconventional. He often couldn't explain what he wanted the players to do, so he showed them instead. And just like when he was a player, Pushkas built relationships with his team. Okay, now... Let's go eat. My treat. In 1976, after being away from Hungary for 20 years, news came from home. His mother had died. And then news came of his oldest friend, Jozef Bujik. He had suffered a heart attack. He was coaching the national team. It happened after they lost a match to Austria. No, listen, Tutsu. You've got to take it easy. Think about stepping away from football for a while. Bojik's health deteriorated, and he suffered another heart attack. I could just go back to Budapest. Enough time has passed after all. No, no, I can't go. Even if they let me, I promised myself I'd never go back after the way they treated me. Oh, but what if he doesn't make it? How could I live with myself? He didn't make it. In 1978, Jozef Bojik died at the age of 52. He's considered one of Hungary's best football players. Honvid's home stadium in Budapest is named in his honor. I never forgave myself for not making it to Tutu's funeral. Hello? A few years later, I got a call from Hungary about the documentary that was being made on the Golden Team. They wanted me to go back to Budapest for an interview. No, Ergi. I'm not going back to Budapest. I didn't go when my mother died or when Tsutu died. I'm not going back now. 1981 marked the 25th anniversary of the Golden Team's victorious period. Between 1950 and 1956, the team recorded 42 victories seven draws and one defeat, which was, of course, the 1954 World Cup final. The Hungarian Football Federation assured me that they got the state's blessing and that nothing would happen to me. But I still didn't feel good about it. Eventually, my wife convinced me to go. I couldn't believe the welcoming I got when I returned. There were many familiar faces at the airport. Eva, Eva, I missed you. I'm sorry I wasn't here when our mother died. No, guys, please don't cry, or I'll start crying too. Well, you used to call me fat. Look how big you've all gotten. The surviving members of the Golden Team were invited to play a veterans match at the People's Stadium. More than 60,000 people turned out to see them. Pushkash, especially. 
I couldn't believe I lived to see that day. It meant the world to me to be welcomed back to my home country. On October 23, 1989, Hungary declared an end to communist rule. Ergi, what do you think about moving back to Hungary? It feels right. It's time. Pushkash, now in his mid-sixties, returned to Budapest. A new opportunity was waiting for him. I was asked to coach the national team. It was a temporary situation. I told them, if you want me to build a good team... Give me five years. They gave me three months. <laughs> it was right in the middle of the 1994 World Cup campaign. We obviously didn't qualify. After that, they offered me various positions in the Hungarian Football Federation, but I didn't want to get involved in all the politics that go with that. So I became an advisor for the national team. The 1990s were a time of recognition for Pushkash. In 1995, he was recognized as the greatest top-division scorer of the 20th century. Three years later, he was inducted into the FIFA Hall of Champions, and in 1999, he was voted by fans as one of the best players of the 20th century. But in his personal life, he wasn't feeling his best. Hello, Ergi. How was your day? Oh, dinner is ready. Wonderful. Uh, pass me the... Um, uh, yes, the water. Thank you. Oh, Ergie, so sorry. I forgot to ask. How was your day? I started getting confused a lot. I didn't think much of it at first, but my memory kept getting worse. In 2000, when he was 73 years old, Pushkash was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He eventually needed 24-hour supervision and was moved to live in a hospital permanently. Ergi visited me every day. Our whole marriage for 56 years, she never left my side. In 2006, Pushkash contracted pneumonia. He spent his final two months in an intensive care unit. On November 17, 2006, he died at the age of 79. His funeral was declared a national day of mourning. At the stadium, named in his honour, his coffin was placed in the centre of the football pitch for fans to come and bid farewell to their hero. Pushkash was buried in the capital St. Stefan's Basilica, the most sacred Catholic church in Hungary. In 2009, FIFA announced the Ferenc Pushkash Award, bestowed to the player deemed to have scored the most beautiful goal of the year, a tribute to his stunning drag back at Wembley in 1953. In football, Pushkash strived for greatness, and he made sure his teams achieved it. But what set Pushkash apart wasn't only the quantity of goals. Pushkash played with intelligence, he shot with precision, and he scored with force. He gave the world the kind of quality performance even his opponents, even non-football fans, could appreciate. And he played with a contagious passion. 
Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. The series was produced by Sout Podcasts. Their team is producer and editor Tala Alisa, production coordinator Rana Dawood, editor and fact checker Omar Faris, associate producer Basant Samhut. Sound design by Taisir Kabani. This episode is written by Sama Nazif. Research by Rahaf Salahat. Fact-checking by Tarak Ayub. Extra voices played by Stephen Brunton. Football commentary is played by Stephen Brunton. Ferenc Pushkas is played by Les Horovitz. Extra voices played by Liz Foda. Recording by Revolution Recording and Voconet. Additional research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Lynn Enwin. Script editing by Danalo Hawaleshka. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Juan Carlos Van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.